good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, and welcome to the American Age Podcast. This is C. Travis Webb, editor of the American Age, and I'm speaking with Seth and Stephen. Gentlemen, how are you guys doing? Pretty good, pretty good. I can't complain. This is Stephen Fulwer from the Nomadic Archivist Project. And this is Seth Rodney, editor at Hyperallergic Blogazine. Uh, so we get to do something a little different this time. I'm actually in New York in Seth's studio, um, so we're a little bit closer this time, uh, which I'm happy about. Uh, we are re-recording this podcast. Last time we had some technical difficulties and one of us didn't get picked up. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so... That person and, will remain nameless. That's right. That's right. We're not saying who that was. So, so clearly uh, it's me and I have no problem, no problem admitting it. It was an awful thing. Uh, For the audience, and, I simply didn't push record. That was a technical <laughs> difficulty. Um, and I started the last podcast on a on a, an addendum, which I'd like to add because I'd like to make sure that's on the record. In uh, last podcast, I said I had a PhD in comparative literature, which uh, isn't exactly right. I have a PhD in com- in religion, specializing in comparative religion, but s- specifically what is called critical comparative scriptures. So it has a lot to do with reading scripture and its attendant literatures very closely. So it's similar to comparative literature. But I just you know. If anyone ever looked it up, anyone would be like, what? That's not what, it, that's not what his PhD is in. So. Uh, but I'm going to stop referring to that in the podcast because like we uh, bantered about last time, I think it's a little uh, self-involved, so I don't need to throw my title out there. Um, so. but, but I have a PhD and I like throwing my title out there. <laughs> and I've seen a PhD, I've dated PhDs, so... <laughs> I can put them together. Piled high and deep. Is that what you guys are talking about? Uh, <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> yeah. um, so today's uh, topic is uh, the sense of an, what's called, uh, it, I'm taking the title from a book called A Sense of an Ending, but the, the, the topic was suggested by Stephen, which is the, the sense of impending doom of urgency or apocalypse, as Stephen mentioned in the last podcast. So Stephen, do you want to lead us into it? Well, just before oh, he does oh, that, I just want to mention oh. to our, our listeners that we are a podcast about intellectual intimacy. Thank so you, Seth. We would like <laughs> you to be intimate with our thoughts over the next 15 to 20 minutes while we talk about apocalypticness. Ah, apocalypticness. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Travis. So um, I've noticed that there seems to be more of an increase in um, the sense of apocalypticness in our culture. And I started to think about what that meant for me personally. I started looking up, for example, around the 80s, there was this idea that the world was going to end. And before that, the 50s, where we created the atomic bomb, Folks started for the first time to think that the world could actually end for them in a bigger way than just simply leaving a place or war or what have you. It was something very sort of mm-hmm. impending doom, as um, Travis had mentioned before that. In the 80s, it was HIV and AIDS. It was AIDS coming in and sort of sweeping through um, mm-hmm. a lot of poorer communities, black and Latino communities, as well as white communities and killing folks. But I think that the digital age was a, was a moment where we started to see how close we, we could pick up on messages from other people and how other people mm-hmm. felt. So that sense of doom um, could be encroaching, you know, in the entertainment. I think Seth mentioned before, and I probably mentioned again, the movies, the kind of sensibility. So there's, um, I think people right now are trying to live for now, um, maybe not in the right way or maybe in a way that feels good. It just feels like the world could end more quickly now than ever. Mm-hmm. And so. Seth, then, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Well, I flashback on a piece that I'd written 
several years ago about a, an artist named Adrian Villa Rojas. And the, the particular um, piece that he had, uh, I think it was a museum show, a gallery or museum show, um, was a kind of, what's the word for it? Ruins, mm -hmm. like uh, <laughs> sort of as if the Colosseum um, had been re rejiggered or re revamped and then torn down again. Mm. Uh, so there was statuary that was on its side, broken pillars, bells that were cracked, all huge pieces in, uh, uh, made of stone and ceramic. And what I had written about the work at the time was that it made me think of how our fantasies of doom are essentially ways that we have of coming to terms with our desperation to be alone. Because mm -hmm. living on the planet, we are constantly surrounded with other human beings and having to negotiate politically, socially, physically having to negotiate one's own place in the world because other human beings are kind of always around and in the way. Mm. It feels, and it felt to me when I wrote that piece, that that's part of our generalized anxiety. So mm. this, that gives the kind of to turn to what Stephen's just been talking about and that I think there's a sense of doom and yes, that stuff might just end tomorrow, but I think partly we kind of want it to end tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a kind of indulgence in, in the feeling of, of being alone or being, being those who are there at the end. There's a kind of narcissism in, involved in that. Two, two things that... that came to mind and, and that I recalled from last time was, you know, one, this sense of being overwhelmed by the proximity of strangers and other bodies uh, isn't new. It's not modern, unless you want to extend the modern era back thousands of mm -hmm. years. Um, A.L. Basham, who wrote a book called The Wonder That Was India, talks about the, the ways in which um, ancient uh, South Asian Sanskrit literatures um, came out of this anxiety uh, around the crowded cities that these peoples inhabit. Now, by our standards, these cities were, of course, not crowded, but mm -hmm. but it sort of doesn't it does it doesn't matter how the goalpost moves. You know, the simple fact of the matter is we, we didn't really evolve to be comfortable around thousands of people we don't know. Mm -hmm. It's not. We, we can't suss their intentions. Um, you know, it's, it's good if we speak the same language because then we can, you know, sort of translate our intentions. And this is one reason that, you know, foreign places and foreigners will, uh, uh, will give rise to so much anxiety around certain peoples. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that sense of impending doom, apocalypse, anxiety, the desire to be alone, like Seth just said, mm -hmm. um, has been with us for a very long time. It's mm -hmm. not new. Um, it's just more dangerous. You know, now we've got, you know, now we've got weapons that can 
can dispatch with a great many people very quickly. Um, so anyway, Stephen, what were you, uh, what were you thinking about that? I was thinking about something you mentioned before. Was it the Dunbar? Oh, the Dunbar number. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and originally I had thought it was very low, but it's actually 150 people. So the Dunbar number is a theory that there is um, there's an upper limit to our cognitive capacity to keep track of intimate social relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that number is theorized to be around between 150 and 200. Now, I don't know, this is not settled science. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a theory, but I know that it's, it's taken seriously. Well, uh, and there has been some social media research around this. So it's, sorry, go ahead. it's provocative. It makes you, makes you wonder when you think about your orbits, your immediate orbits and your mm-hmm. other orbits, say mm-hmm. they might be professional or friendship orbits. And how many people can you take? And I, Seth and I had a conversation uh, months ago about being an introvert or being an extrovert. And what that mm. means is how much social interaction can you stand in a day? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, on a good day. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so whereas I think I'm somewhere in the middle of the introvert, extrovert kind of thing where I do draw energy from people, but then sometimes I'm automatically, I don't know what my supply is and it just cuts off and I'm ready to go home. And I'm ready to not talk to people that that right. is exhausting to try to keep up with all the energies and the conversations and the energy. So, right. And so, yeah, I was thinking of that. Um, so I think that that colors our conversation, actually. I think that and and this is something that I had just thought of because you mentioned the introvert extrovert dynamic, Stephen. Mm-hmm. I know for a fact that I'm introverted. And I've known this, mm-hmm. I think, ever since I took the Myers-Briggs yeah. personality test, mm-hmm. which I did when I was in London. So Th- that which is, by the way, not taken seriously by <laughs> psychologists. Oh, OK. But, well, that's, that's good. To know. <laughs> but what but what but even more profound sort of indication of who I was, was later reading uh, a description of, uh, which, I, which I've kept with me since, and I think is the most apt description of introverts and extroverts, and I'll rehearse it. Basically, an introvert is someone who starts out the day with a whole bunch of gold coins, and we go throughout our day handing them out to people. Mm. And when we get to the end of our gold coin supply, we're done. Mm-hmm. Whereas the extrovert, and this makes perfect sense to me, because uh, uh, realizing that most politicians are extroverts, mm-hmm. they start off the day with their bag empty, and they go around collecting gold coins mm-hmm. from social interactions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that person who's like the go-getter, the like the, the, the talker, the 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 PR or polit the PR. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, marketing that yes mm-hmm. yes kind mm-hmm. of guru mm-hmm. or the politician they love social interaction me mm-hmm. i like i would <laughs> would rather talk to maybe a handful of people throughout my day mm-hmm. and the rest really i don't i don't need mm-hmm. uh, because those are the interactions like you Stephen, that I feel, what's the word, energized by. Mm-hmm. So I think this colors my view of what we're talking about, about this sort of social in- or this kind of greater anxiety around the world ending or the world continuing. And yeah, it reminds me of that Twilight Zone episode where yeah. the woman is imagining this world. She, 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 she has this... Had, well, we don't know that it's a dream, but when it starts out, uh, it, the episode opens with this uh, 
situation where the world is just getting hotter and hotter because something happened to the um, the planetary orbit and now it's moving closer to the sun and so things are unbearably hot and people are dying and there's a full-on ecological disaster, right? Mm-hmm. And then at some point she uh, wakes up from this dream when we find out it's a dream and it's actually the opposite. She was <laughs> dreaming this because the world is actually getting colder and colder in such a way that it's just, again, it's, 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 the same sort of ending with the flip, with the script flipped, right? Like it's an ecological disaster and people are dying. Mm-hmm. So I think there is that in that kind of uh, eschatol, esch- what's the word? Eschatological? Es- eschatological, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> that sense of the world ending that is sort of hanging over our collective heads, I think is both desired and not desired. It's, 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 it's desired because it feels like it's, it's the other doom, right? It's the other, it's the, it's the, it's the other side of the coin. It's like not doomed by being around so many damn people, but doomed by being completely alone. Wow. Wow. See, I see, I keep thinking that, and I mentioned this before on the podcast that wasn't recorded, (laughs) that I think, um, this sense of doom and this, this sense of apocalyptic sensibility comes from. It's a larger metaphor for having to change mm. the end of one's world the way we know it. Right. You know, and I mentioned uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, this French philosopher who was, mm. he cautioned about us becoming cyborgs, right? Mm. But that different people from different disciplines, feminism, they were like, fine, if we've all become cyborgs, then sexism will end, right? <laughs> I mean, there were different <laughs> kinds of thoughts right. about it. But I remember thinking... Donna Haraway, yes. Right. Yes. And mm-hmm. so... Because it's identity. This is what we're having to really deal with, you know, identity and difference and Mm -hmm. having being I grew up in a large family and I was talking to Travis this morning about it. And now I live I've lived alone at different parts of my life. And right now I live alone and that it can be like he mentioned as a sort of low level. um, You mentioned. not despondence, um, oh, not depression. Oh, sort of like a, yeah, a background melancholy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you from living alone? Yeah, I'll tell you why, because I'm never just one person. I'm always a bunch of people. I'm never just one guy. So there are days when I, I'm not featuring anybody, and other days when I'm like, I have people over all the time. <laughs> I try to, you know. I don't have a cat or a dog. I have plants that I talk to. But I feel very, like, it depends on how I feel, you know. And sometimes, yeah. like you know, you don't know when you might want someone with you there. You yeah. know, it just pops yeah. up, and it's just the way it is. So, yeah, I was, you know, it was the the conversation was around just the, in some ways, the luxuriousness of being able to live by yourself, and and mm-hmm. what's nice about it. But when I've lived by myself, which which I do, um, there is a kind of pleasure in that. I mean, I have a family now, and I'm very happy to have a family. Uh, and but there is even even amidst that that luxuriousness and that time to be alone and to entertain thoughts or hobbies or readings that I might want to spend time with, there's a very low level, almost in the background, sort of like white noise that I would describe as a kind of thin melancholy that's mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. there waiting. Mm-hmm. And what it it I've, I've what found uh, there's a there's a Japanese term for this as it relates to the woods called mono no aware, mm-hmm. which is roughly translated as the slender sadness, mm. and ah. it's 
it's that thing that you feel in in the way that it's uh, that it was most provocatively uh, described to me was it's that feeling in the woods after the snowfall and you're alone and it's quiet mm. and there's a kind of slender sadness mm-hmm. in that moment and i i always felt like that there it, you know, it's not overwhelming. I, I don't. I've never really battled with depression or anything like that. But just there, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so I, I do. When when Seth, when you you made the move to think of apocalypse as this sort of like just wanting the world to empty out, like I get that, right? I mean, there's, it, but of course that is also terrible, right? right. There's also it's it's. Uh, it's overwhelming the sense the the, the the sort of the sense of relief and then also uh, just that presence of of being alone. Yes, exactly. I mean that's that's what I see in these films like I Am Legend, The Road, Twenty Eight Days Later, mm. The Book of Eli, Twelve mm. Monkeys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can go on and on. In the past twenty years, there have been at least um, I think I've seen at least. 20 or 30 films sure, yeah. Yeah. that, yeah. that, yeah, that yeah. have that as a central motif, right? This notion that there's some sort of ecological disaster or some disaster that comes out of, usually actually te- techno-medical disaster, mm-hmm. right? So we try to cure something mm-hmm. and we release this virus into the world and you know, decimates the populations, World War Z. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and that is this kind of, yes, it's a kind of manifestation of anxiety, of, of worrying that, our anxiety, rather, that there are too many people, there's too much pressure on us to constantly be on, to constantly perform. Mm-hmm. But then the other side of that is that the world empties out, and then you're by yourself, and with that kind of, I mean, the, the, the poignant scene, mm-hmm. I think, that kind of captures that mm-hmm. desperation that one would have in those circumstances is when Will Smith in the, fi- in the film I Am Legend mm-hmm. starts to break down and he starts to have that conversation with the mannequin and mm-hmm. he starts to yell at the mannequin, why won't you talk to me? Why won't you mm-hmm. talk to me? Mm-hmm. I, think, I think we're always, as human beings, we're kind of always, at, at least in this moment, we're kind of always playing between those poles, mm-hmm. like breaking down because there's so many damn people around constantly demanding things from us, but mm-hmm. also breaking down when we're alone. And, and uh, as you said, Stephen, because you are so many different people throughout your day, you never know when you might need or want someone there to be the sort of anchor for that person mm-hmm. that you are in that moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It... it... See, I'm I'm stuck on this point about ennui, which is not what Travis described because mm. I'm trying to like parse that. Mm. So I'm actually still mm. in this place where I'm thinking that with the Dunbar number and and what you can and cannot do, and how we're being pushed, to always be more, mm. you know, to to um, push our brands, whether we're selling something or not, whether it's, you know what this or that platform. The, I'm exhausted. Yes. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. Yeah. And I never Burn. thought it would be like this. I mean, who could have imagined the world of digital life in this way? Honestly. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And it can be really fruitful and very soul 
destroying <laughs> and mm-hmm. um and also evidence for a crime because people leave <laughs> we're leaving now we're going to the opera wait a minute something broke in our house <laughs> or <laughs> or you just wait there i'm coming to kill you you know that kind of thing <laughs> it's like right exactly you know so you know we're all very but weary I, about you know this and that um information breach at this platform that platform so you and I are, and Seth probably is, we probably have enough, whether we're, whether we're strictly introverted or, or a significant portion of, of who we are is introverted. You know, I'm sure it's on a spectrum like everything is. Um, and people like us are the ones that tend to write uh, apocalyptic narratives, right? Because we are mm-hmm. the ones that tend to spend time alone with uh-huh. pens in hand or keyboards in front of us or behind cameras. But I think of, you know, the, so I, I relate to exactly what you just said. But then I wonder, I think of someone like RuPaul, right? Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there not a way in which RuPaul is maybe not entirely liberated in the digital age? I mean, think of the number of people that he can become and try on. And I mean, I remember actually Seth uh, shared that article with me mm-hmm. where RuPaul was talking about um, sort of the, the origins of of so many cultural movements come out of gay culture. It just Mm -hmm. takes, you know, it takes five years, six years for it to seep out um, to become part of the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And voguing, runway shows, reality TV. It's a very long list. And and, and that, and and RuPaul was talking in this article about actually, Stephen, about sort of this trickster um, uh, personification of being able to take on, to put on and take off a variety of identities. Okay. And so I, I wonder for someone that that is that, is that uh, at least apparently free-spirited. I mean, I don't know RuPaul. Maybe this is just a, a mask for an interview, I can't say. But mm-hmm. I wonder if someone that, that has that type of liberal approach to their own identity, if the proliferation of identities and brands and notions of the self isn't actually a kind of freedom for them, that kind of marketplace isn't it actually liberating. Whereas it is clearly not for me. Again, to echo, mm-hmm. I am I'm with I get exhausted by it. But uh, I wonder if for others that's true. It makes me think of um, people who didn't get enough attention at home. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that's the snarky answer, right? And that's right. what people have always said. It's like, oh, so this thank is why you, people become thank stars. You for un- thank and, you for undermining my entire point. But interesting <laughs> about what you're saying about this persona bit, because then one person doesn't have to take the weight of all the, the social energy. You can, mm. you know, dress up and be this person, and this person gets a little love. And mm. and I don't, that's, that does, that sounds interesting. That sounds like that could be something really remarkable if that's what you're getting at yeah i mean again it it requires just it's a little uh i mean i'm stealing from someone else this is not how i move through the world so Mm -hmm. i don't i'm i'm just i'm conjecturing that there are people like that um particularly younger people that may not feel the same kind of pressures i I don't know if i'm convinced by that to be honest though Mm -hmm. i um I mean, I know that a lot of, in a lot of self-reporting, depression is way up in a digital age, and um, suicide is yeah. a, a problem. Drug addiction is increasing. So, you know, I, you know, I, I throw it out there more as a as a maybe, uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to something that I would it's intriguing. I would argue yeah. strongly, I would argue strongly for. Um, I know, Seth, do you have anything you want to finish up with? Because we have to do a relatively short podcast today because Stephen has an appointment he has to get to and and we got started a little bit late. Right. Just one thing, which is that it's very possible 
we're all sort of historians, uh, different kinds of historians, but we all are. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether there's a point that, I wonder whether we could say just generally that human beings have always had anxiety about the world ending. Mm. And this, that kind of, our brand of anxiety is only just our particular brand of anxiety. Mm. Yeah, the way that the world has become digitized and globalized introduces sort of new valences to the underlying anxiety of being a human being. Mm. Um, some And some people are blunted by it and some people are made larger mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and can fully bloom in in the digital age. I do think that one of the things that make it possible to manage what is likely this ever-present anxiety is precisely religious practices. And I remember having this conversation with Travis a few weeks back, something, I think, no, we we was doing the podcast. It was either doing one at the end of one, where I was complaining about organized religions in general and saying, why is it that over the course of human history, we haven't yet figured out how to move past these rather limiting ways of imagining ourselves in the universe? Mm-hmm. And, and Travis turned it around and said, yeah, th- think about it. Like, of, of, throughout the course of human history, we've generally stuck to these kinds of ways of organizing ourselves. Mm-hmm even though we, quote-unquote, haven't had to think about why we've done that. Mm. So there must be compelling reasons. And I think, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe this managing this anxiety is one of those compelling mm. reasons because I, I, I you know, grew up in a, in a Christian home. One of the ways that Christianity works is that it foists off all the responsibility for that anxiety onto a world in which a Christian essentially does not belong, right? Mm. I mean, mm. every Christian is supposed to be looking essentially to the heavens for Jesus Christ to come mm. back and take them to mm. glory where they'll live, you know, forever and ever, happily ever after, la la la. Mm. That's the dream. That's the promise. That's the that's the thing that makes that just sort of, that's the thing that, that you the, the thread that you pull that the and the whole garment comes undone right mm-hmm. the whole human garment comes undone that's a hell of a way to manage the freaking anxiety mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. you said yeah. I have nothing to say <laughs> except that so, yeah. so we're gonna we're gonna let we're gonna let the podcast close on Seth's very apt description of being a Christian um, so. Uh, Stephen, thanks very much. Thank uh, you very much. Seth, thank you very much. Yes, indeed. And it was really good to talk to both of you. Um, Looking forward to next time. We're not sure what yet we're going to talk about. Uh, I may be in Wisconsin for the next week. so He won't be. We'll record the podcast early. So we're going to work around Seth. We want Seth to be here. We're going to work around Seth's schedule. All right. So until next time. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.